Good morning, Trinity Heights Church and friends. Welcome to the third Sunday in our First Thessalonians series, or as Tim might call it, One Thessalonians. Today, we'll have a brief look at the two sections within chapter four, one which discusses ethical behavior within the local community, and another which discusses the resurrection of the body. These are natural extensions of one another, arguably cyclical, and we'll see how Paul understands this in light of living our lives towards our fullest potential and liberty. Linda McKinnish Bridges is a biblical scholar from my home state of North Carolina, and she used to spend the Easter Sundays of her youth at sunrise services at her father's church to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. They would hold these services outside by the church cemetery, and she describes the quiet, eerie hush of early mornings before the congregation arrived and how the sun rose from behind the mountains to shatter the fog. Given the theme of these services, the resurrection, she chose to stand beside the newer graves in the event that today would be the day of the great rapture, and thinking that if the dead in Christ did rise that day, then maybe newer corpses were not as scary as older ones. Dr. Bridges recounts this memory in her commentary on 1 Thessalonians and she, as she examines the second section of chapter 4 and how it retroactively informs the first half of the passage. One of the questions she eventually lands on is, can I trust my innermost self to be my moral compass? So then we have to ask, what constitutes our moral compass? What's driving that and keeping us on the road? Dr. Bridges says, the challenge for all of us is to get to a level of understanding of the self that rests beneath the layer of external realities. The spiritual journey does not discount rules of behavior. Rather, that quest is made in order to understand them more fully. If we want an authentic understanding of ourself, the base of our behavior, then much intensive work is to be done. But before we go too far though, I want to get ahead of some language that comes up when talking about this particular chapter. Stephen often uses the analogy of football. To those of us in the States, we have a very different understanding and relationship to this word than say someone in the UK. All sorts of different memories, emotions, and images pop into mind but we might be contemplating very different things if we don't clarify the context around it. In this letter, Paul uses language that at the time was differently understood or at least still being formed and defined. And it probably did not come with the same loaded baggage that we have in our contemporary setting. My attempt is not to redefine these exclusively, but to propose an outlook that fits within this biblical context as well as within our own context and time. So let's look at a few words, two of which are apostolic language from the passage, and one that was made up by some people very long ago, but more recently than the apostles. Holiness. Holiness can have some unfortunate associations. It can sound oppressive, prudish, outdated, unobtainable, self-righteous, as if one is holier than thou, and generally any other thing that sounds like being a wet blanket. Within the context of this letter and how it fits within our context at Trinity Heights, we can understand this term as being fully human. We often speak of being fully human as a way to express what it means to reflect the image of God. Sanctification. Sanctification has several layers of abstraction and can sound as though it's simple behavioral modification or even ascension or enlightenment to some out of reach ideal. It can also sound as if we were saying one can earn God's affection by constantly attempting to being better. 
What we mean here is the process of becoming fully human, or more like the image of Christ. There's both something we take part in and have responsibility for through our behavior, and is something being done to us by God. Eschatology. So this one often has a negative connotation as well. It's associated with the end times, judgment, death, frailty, finality. What I think it's more accurately about is future hope. Not about how it will end, but what will come. Not about what is last, but what is lasting. And this is what frames resurrection life. So with that, let's dive in. Last week, Eric displayed Paul's love for the Thessalonians by sharing his and Megan's compelling personal journey and correspondence through their love letters. Separated by thousands of miles of ocean and continents, their young and devoted love for one another was spurred onward by encouraging looks towards the future. In one letter, Eric wrote about when they would be rejoined. In others, they encouraged one another in their daily, normal lives. So let's consider where we are in Paul's letter. He's just expressed his deep love for the Thessalonian community and is encouraging them in their daily normal lives. He's encouraging them to walk in individual and communal ethical behavior for the sake of God's call for them to be fully human. Verse one, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then he lists ethical behaviors for the Thessalonians. Abstain from sexual immorality, verse 3. Control one's body, verse 4. Do not wrong one's brother, 6. Love one another, 8. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands, verse 11. Walk properly before outsiders, verse 12. So the first three are pretty tightly tied to sexual behavior and ethics. The last three are tied to outward engagement within the community but all six are concerned with holiness. And we see this clearly called out in verse seven. But as mentioned earlier, holiness is related to our call to be fully human, which is Paul's primary concern here. He, like Eric and Megan, wanted the absolute best for the people on the other end of the letter. This calling for holiness or full humanity is first glimpsed in Genesis one and two, to reflect God's image and to act as co-creators within the world or to say slightly differently, to perpetuate its future through life-giving activity and intent. All of the imperatives that Paul outlines in verses 1 through 12 are life-giving. They build up the individual and community through unity and humility, both for the sake of spiritual and sociological health. They are founded in the faithfulness and love of God as seen through the life of Jesus, who was, surprise, surprise, the embodiment of being fully human being holy. Paul would likely see the abuses of these ethical issues as destructive to our vocational call of being co-creators and bearing his image, of establishing unity and peace within our world as it grows. For instance, if we were to turn around Paul's encouragements to the Thessalonians, it might look something like this. We ask and urge you in your own desire to walk and to please yourself, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Lean into sexual immorality and flippancy, put yourselves before others, build up your own reputation, and act at the expense of others. Take advantage of your brother and your neighbor. Live with pride, ego, self-righteousness, make sure to gossip, and profit off of the work of others. Act foolishly, pompously, and don't worry about any sense of honor. 
It's worth mentioning that the Thessalonians were in a competitive honor culture that celebrated upward mobility. These antithetical verses that we made up are not far off from much of the common behavior of the Greco-Roman culture that was focused on wealth, status, deed, and reputation. What Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians to do was to act in a subversive way that generated downward mobility, but resulted in unity and humility for the people, rather than individualism and competitive disregard for one another. It's important to note that these are not just beneficial actions for a peaceful society, though they are that too. Paul's ethical and moral imperatives are framed within holiness. And this isn't restrictive, but opens up opportunities for the people to lean into becoming fully human, fully free, not just full of opportunity and choice. So let's pause again for a few moments and talk about freedom, because we often think of freedom as no limits, whatever I want, whenever I want. However, there are two main ways we can frame freedom, negative liberty and positive liberty. Negative liberty is having all of the choices, all of the options, so as to not restrict ourselves from any opportunity or possibility. This is often how we think of God, almighty, all-knowing, impassable, everywhere, nothing is beyond him. If anyone has seen Disney's Aladdin, this is sort of how Jafar thinks it would be um, to be a genie. In reflecting this image of God, we think the same of ourselves and more frequently follow our passions indiscriminately. Leslie Newbigin describes it as, we are accustomed to the rich variety of, offered on the supermarket shelves and to the freedom we have to choose. Positive liberty. Positive liberty is sitting within limitations in order to fully thrive and to be fully human. It is freely entering into parameters for the sake of ourselves or others. This, I would argue, is a more accurate depiction of God within scripture, and that he has actively entered into a relationship with humanity, humanity and the world. He has limited himself in many ways. For instance, think of the covenants he made with Abraham, Moses, and Israel, um, as well as the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And by entering into a relationship with anyone, we see it puts us in a position of risk, sacrifice, and humility. By reflecting this image of God, we follow in the footsteps of relational co-creation and future building within our personal relationships with God, as well as within our sociological relationships and com commitments. And this is the setting in which Paul is proposing his encouragement for ethical behavior and growth. If you've ever glanced through James's epistle, you've probably noticed his focus on speech ethics and taming the tongue as impacts on community and as a barometer for spiritual health and maturity. What we, can uh, what we can say can have a dramatic impact on those around us and reflects the attitudes of our hearts. Similar is Paul's concern. One, for spiritual health as part of the vertical relationship with God, and two, unity, humility, and relationship within communal contexts. This is sometimes more difficult for us to grasp in a postmodern individualistic context where we're less accountable to others and rarely see authorities outside of ourselves. We've come to hold the reins over our own lives and frequently are unconcerned with the consequences as long as no one was hurt. We might even add today, as long as no one was invalidated. What Paul and Dr. Bridges are saying is that we have an obligation to go deeper than this. We have an obligation to consider not what doesn't harm or doesn't restrict someone, but to consider what makes our fellow human flourish. In Paul's eyes, this is informed by our call to holiness, or being fully human, and the process of becoming this. 
Again, it is these pieces that prompt Dr. Bridges to ask, can I trust my innermost self to be my moral compass? I might add to this, who am I becoming? So let's briefly turn to the second half of the passage. Um, Paul has a strange shift in tone. Even if this were a distinctly different chapter, the shift sounds odd to our ears that might prefer a systematic categorical organization. However, the last chapters of the epistle have an A, B, B prime, A prime literary structure. It mirrors itself. Paul isn't interrupting his line of inquiry so much as he is one, giving the audience comfort about their deceased brethren, that they'll be reunited with them, as Eric mentioned last week. And two, providing additional reason to be eager to lean into the physiological and sociological ethics. Paul is not talking about the end, or death, or bodies crawling out of graves. He is talking about future hope, the resurrection of the body, and unity with Jesus, which means unity with God. Wolfhart Pannenberg was a Lutheran theologian who developed a concept called proleptic eschatology. Now, before you roll your eyes and your brain drips out of your head, this is actually a pretty approachable concept. Boiled down, it's really about anticipating the future. For Pannenberg, the beginning or essence of a thing is determined by its future. The future exercises a retroactive causality on the present. And so a thing can possess its essence here and now only by anticipating what it will be in the future. In typical biblical fashion, and having been an avid gardener, Pannenberg uses a botanical metaphor. A zinnia is already a zinnia as a shoot and remains one during the entire process of its growth up to blossoming, even though the flower bears its name on account of its end result. Without the blossom, we could not determine its nature in advance. And yet, over the period of its growth, it would still be what it revealed itself to be at the end, a zinnia. It would possess its essence through anticipation, though only at the end of the development process would one be able to know that this was its essence. Given our future hope and identity in God, what we're being made into through sanctification, we can argue that our being and essence is already that. Whilst we are seeds and stems growing, we do not need to be uncertain of our being or grope along the wall blindly. We can act in anticipation of what we are becoming, which is also informed by what we have been called into, as mentioned earlier, co-creators who perpetuate the future of humanity and the world through life-giving activity and intent. All of us, everyone, will have unique identities, personalities, gifts, and opportunities that should be honored and cultivated these, Paul argues, fit within the moral compass of being fully human, or holy. So we can't just leave the table here with an abstract concept that's neat to think about. How does this play out? Well, to a meaningful degree, that's dependent upon you and me in our daily lives and our responsibility to consider our communal moral compass and how they compare to the call for holiness. In the passage, Paul points to issues directly related to the Thessalonians environment sexual fidelity, peaceable living, not giving into gossip, working diligently within the scope of our vocation and skills, not using others to benefit our own upward mobility or prestige, and things like this. These are relevant to us as well, but what I leverage as a guidepost, especially as we have people scattered all across the globe in many cultural contexts, is verse four, or verse uh, one. 
Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So more and more is both in terms of quantity and quality. It's frequency and depth. And Paul's use of walking is an interesting metaphor to describe ethical behavior. The parallels are instructive. For example, an infant is not born walking. One learns how to walk with time and practice. In addition, one's walking ability depends on one's environment. It's much easier to walk on asphalt than on a rocky path. And a good diet builds sturdy bones that support strong legs, which are essential for walking. In similar ways, an infant is not born with full knowledge of the rules for appropriate ethical behavior. And these, of course, must be considered and shaped within the context of brotherly love that Paul proposes is the being and essence of our becoming fully 